On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, friends, let's just bow in prayer as we come to think about God's word. Heavenly Father, we want to thank and praise you for your word. We uh, thank you that it is uh, the, the true testimony of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father God, that as we think about it today uh, from this passage, that you would help us to uh, consider its implications and its consequences for what we believe and uh, how we live. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of years back, Cassie and myself visited England. And uh, I actually didn't think that I would enjoy visiting old churches in England. Uh, they're not really my thing, but I actually did enjoy it. I enjoyed visiting the old churches, mostly because they have a lot of famous people uh, from history uh, buried or lying in caskets inside the churches. Now, that sounds rather morbid, doesn't it? But uh, in Westminster Abbey, uh, they bury people underneath the floor. And then they put a plaque on the floor uh, to tell you whose remains uh, lie beneath. And so I actually enjoyed walking over the remains of Charles Darwin and uh, a few feet away from him, Sir Isaac Newton. Uh, in one room is a casket containing 
Mary, Queen of Scots. And in a nearby room uh, is a casket of her, uh, is the casket of her half-sister and her arch-rival, Queen Elizabeth I. Uh, where I stood, uh, alongside the casket of Queen Elizabeth I, I stood there for quite a while, uh, trying to remember what I could, what I'd studied in uh, 16th century English church history, but also thinking that this is not just a memorial to Elizabeth I, it's her. She's in the box. Her bones are right there, uh, a few feet away from me. So what about the bones of Jesus? I, I once saw a church leader who was interviewed on television uh, and he was asked a question which went something like this. The question was, if the bones of Jesus were proven, 100% uh, proven, to be, have been found uh, in, inside a tomb near Jerusalem, how would that affect your faith? And to which he answered to that question, it would have no effect on my faith whatsoever. It would not change a thing for me. Now, what do you think about that? What are your thoughts? You know, last week in the first half of uh, John chapter 20, which uh, Reverend Peter um, preached for us, uh, Mary Magdalene uh, went uh, to, the, to the actual tomb of Jesus. And what is it that she found when she went to the actual tomb of Jesus? She found that it was empty, that the body of Jesus was, was no longer there. And in fact, she actually met Jesus. Not dead, but victoriously having been raised back to life. Now, I, I don't think we can imagine what a shock that was to her, um, particularly given the, uh, the, the brutal nature by which he had been uh, killed. But yet for his core disciples, that is the, uh, the 11, 12 minus Judas, uh, it should have come as no great surprise. Because it was only a few days earlier uh, when Jesus... Uh, shared the Passover with his disciples in the upper room, that he had said to them that uh, very soon that they would be in grief, as he spoke of his death, but that their grief would soon turn to joy. And this is what we see if you have a look at verses 19 and 20, which I'm going to read for you if you'd like to have that open in your Bibles. Uh, where we're told that on the evening of that first day of the week, uh, the Sunday, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed them his, his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now, Mary had already, uh, we learned from the other gospel accounts, that Mary had already uh, shared with the 11 disciples uh, about her experience at the tomb, but uh, they, they didn't believe her, and they thought that the words that she was speaking were just nonsense. And in fact, when we meet them here in this passage, 
the 11 disciples, they are actually, uh, they're scared, aren't they? They're fearful. They've, they've got the doors locked because they're fearful that the, the Jewish leaders, having just arrested and crucified their leader, that maybe uh, they might come after them as well. That is why they have the doors locked. Now, I'm not sure how having the doors locked would have uh, particularly stopped the authorities from getting to them if they wanted to, but the big issue here in this passage is that it didn't actually stop Jesus who entered the house somehow with the doors locked. That is, he entered the house miraculously and he stood with them. Now, do you remember the, the very last words of Jesus? The very last words he said before he died. Do you remember what they were? Three words. It is finished. And here we see the very first words that he spoke to them, having been raised from the dead. Uh, Peace be with you, or shalom alechem, uh, as they would have said, and as the Jews still say so today. Peace be with you. Now, in one sense, this is just an ordinary greeting. This is the kind of greeting that, you, you know, when Australians meet one another, what do we say? We say, g'day mate, how are you going? And in one sense, that's exactly what this term would have been used for. People would say that's just the standard normal greeting that they would have for one another. Shalom, alakem, peace be with you. But yet here it's so much more significant. Because Jesus had earlier in the upper room said to them that despite what they would go through, that they would know, have no need to be fear because my peace I leave with you. And in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, uh, the, the term peace, uh, it's, it's more than just the absence of conflict. Uh, peace actually uh, in, entails the whole of a person's well-being in the coming kingdom of God. That's what the word means. And so here it takes on great significance uh, for Jesus' disciples at the point of the resurrection. Peace be with you. And then in verse 20, Jesus showed them his hands and his side. Now, the word which is translated as hands, uh, it's a, a bit broader than the, uh, the word which we use. It can actually include wrists, even, even the person's forearm. Uh, and it's the wrists uh, which, uh, where, where the, the nails would have been driven through uh, when Jesus was crucified. Just driving nails through the hands would not uh, support the weight of a man being crucified. The point is this, that this isn't just someone who looks like Jesus this isn't just someone who sounds like Jesus. This isn't a Jesus lookalike. No, this is actually Jesus. And his wounds prove it. And as he shows them his hands and his side, he also speaks to them of God's continuing plan. Take a look at verse 21. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. 
And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Wow. That is actually a very compact statement of God's plans for the disciples. Let's unpack it a little bit. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Now, uh, what does that mean? In what sense are they sent uh, in the same way that the Father has sent uh, Jesus? Uh, Again, a few days earlier in the upper room in chapter 15, verse 19, uh, Jesus had told his disciples that he had chosen them out of the world. That is, that they no longer belong to the world. But now he's sending them back into the world just as the Father had sent him into the world. And what this means is that the disciples are now to uh, continue the mission of Jesus. That is, they, they don't embark on some separate mission. They don't embark on something which is completely new and different. No, uh, what they are doing is they are doing the work which Jesus came to do. It is the same mission. And they won't be alone. For with that, Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, actually, uh, where it says that Jesus breathed on them, in the original, it, it just says Jesus breathed. And I actually think that that's not, a, not just a pedantic point. It says that Jesus breathed uh, because uh, by saying he breathed on them, it sort of implies something perhaps a little bit different to what's actually intended. Uh, now, what are we to make of this? Uh, some people say that, um, that it was therefore at this point that the Holy Spirit was imparted to the disciples, that it was at this point that the, the, Spirit, that the, that the disciples received the Holy Spirit in some way. But that would actually contradict... Acts chapter 2, wouldn't it? On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came into the world. And besides, if they received the Holy Spirit at this point, then we would expect some big changes in their lives, wouldn't we? Some dramatic changes in their lives occurring at this, from this moment on. We would expect them to be full of confidence. We would expect them to be wanting to get out there and to tell others... And yet a week later, in verse 26, we see that they're again inside the house with the doors locked because of fear. Now, what uh, seems best here is to understand that this is a a symbolic reminder uh, to them of what Jesus had already promised, that they would receive the Holy Spirit. It's symbolic. And symbolism is, uh, occurs elsewhere in John's Gospel, in the words and the actions of Jesus, uh, similar to how he washed their feet. Uh, when he washed their feet, it pointed to something bigger. It pointed to the, the cross upon which he would wash away 
their sins so that we can be forgiven. Now, I want us to think about that term peace for a moment because if you think about peace, uh, what would you say is the opposite to being peaceful or experiencing peace? What is the opposite to it? Well, warfare is the opposite to peace, but in that deeper sense, uh, perhaps the, uh, one of the opposites of, of peace uh, would be anxiety. Uh, when we're anxious, we're not at peace, are we? And we experience anxiety when we feel under threat and that we're not actually sure that we can deal with it. Now, I remember a man uh, spoke to me once who he had wronged someone. And he told me about how sorry he was about how he had wronged this person, but that he was anxious because he wanted to restore the relationship with that person, but he he was living in anxiety because he was not sure, he did not think that the person would forgive him and that their relationship would be broken. Uh, However, the other person who was a Christian did, in fact, forgive him. And he told me what it felt like when he he got that phone call and the person said, uh, thank you for expressing your sorrow over what you've done. I want you to know that I completely forgive you and that I want relationship with you. And as far as I'm concerned... Uh, it's as if it never happened. And he told me about how his, uh, his anxiety turned to a great, great feeling of, of peacefulness, of peacefulness and of relief. And how much greater, then, is the peace which comes from being forgiven by God? It's possible. It's possible because Jesus died and Jesus rose again. And that is his mission. His mission was to come into the world to die, to pay the penalty for sin, to rise again. And that is the message which the disciples are now commissioned by Jesus for them to preach, to continue that mission which he began. So then in verse 23, how people respond to that message will determine whether they are forgiven or whether they are not forgiven. Take a look at verse 23. Jesus says to them, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying here that, you know, that the disciples are now to go, to, to go around the place and pick at people and say, well, look, I'm, I'm going to forgive that person and I'm not going to forgive that person and, and so on. That's not, it, that's not what's intended here at all. That's very wrong. Uh, it's like the, 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 the forgiveness always depends on a person's response to the message of the gospel which is the message that they preach. And so when Jesus says here that, you know, about the disciples uh, forgiving someone and not forgiving them, uh, I think that what that means there, it's, it's like, as we may say to someone, that if you trust that Jesus has died for your sins, 
and that he's risen from the grave, and if you turn to him as your Lord, then I can say to you, your sins are forgiven. Uh, On the contrary, if you have not trusted in the death of Jesus for your sins, then be assured you are unforgiven. It's that sense. By the way, if that is your situation, that you've not trusted in Jesus, then that is something which you need to do something about. And I'd be very happy to talk to you about that. However, as Jesus spoke to his disciples, not all of them were present at that meeting. Uh, Take a look at verse 24. Uh, Verse 24, Now Thomas, also known as Dinimus, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, I think it may possibly be a little bit unfair that Thomas has been dubbed as doubting Thomas as if that's part and parcel of his entire character. Uh, We see in other parts of John's Gospel that um, other aspects of his character, that uh, when Jesus said that uh, he was going to Jerusalem and the disciples said, no, they might kill you when you get there, uh, it was Thomas who said, well, let's all go with him so that we can die with him. Uh, So there's other aspects to Thomas's character here. Uh, It's not as if he's one of those people who's just always negative and always doubtful and always throwing a wet blanket over things and so on. No, uh, I mean, for the other disciples, Jesus actually offered to show them his hands and his side. And perhaps if Thomas had been present at the time, maybe he too would have believed as they did. But it's great that he wasn't there. Because it causes Thomas to make one of the truly great personal confessions and professions of faith. Verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Did you notice the two miracles here? Uh, The first miracle, of course, is that Jesus didn't need to have an unlocked door to be able to get inside this house. And secondly, that he already knew about Thomas's doubt. He already knew. Now, we're not told if Thomas actually touched Jesus' wounds or not, or uh, as it seems, that, that, that just the sight of them was enough for him, was enough for Thomas to declare, my Lord and my God. Now, some people claim that well, Thomas could not have possibly said that I mean how could he have come up with that deduction Um, but yet John says that he did 
And the Jehovah's Witnesses, well, they claim that, well, he must have been, you know, looking at Jesus when he said, my Lord, and then looked upwards when he said, my God. But it doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't say that. What it does say in verse 29 is that Jesus considered this to be a true confession of faith and that Jesus did not reject being called God. In fact, it shows that Thomas not only believes the resurrection but also points to its meaning as to who Jesus is. Uh, that is, the, the human of expression, what, this, what we have here is a human expression of, the, of faith which lines up with what John had said in the very beginning of his gospel when he said that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us and we have seen his glory. Now most people uh, would not ever see Jesus' glory in that sense. And the reason for that, of course, is because Jesus would soon ascend to heaven. Jesus uh, speaks about this. Have a look in verse 29. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Who's that, by the way? Well, that's about every Christian in the world, every person who's trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ after uh, he had ascended from he to heaven. And, and that's us. That is us. I mean, you know, we uh, will we'll never, we will absolutely most certainly never stand next to a box with the bones of Jesus inside because he is raised. But neither uh, do we, like Thomas and John and many others who were there at the time, neither do we get to see the resurrected Jesus. Not in this life anyway. Rather, we are to believe on the basis of the testimony of the eyewitnesses. And, and that is why John wrote his gospel how do we know that that's John's purpose in writing the gospel? Well, we know that because he tells us in verse 30, uh, where he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, when you read those verses, it, it kind of sounds like um, one of those things that you read and you think, well, he's just about to wrap up. <laughs> that, you know, this is obviously the final uh, statement uh, in his gospel, and it sounds like it, it would be, but it's not because John's got another chapter to go, in which there is another miracle performed. And so why does he state this conclusion about miracles at this point? Well, um, all of the miracles 
and tell us something of who Jesus is and why he came. But the greatest is the resurrection. For the resurrection proves that because Jesus is, as Thomas declared, God, because Jesus is God the Son, that his death on the cross was enough. Enough. Sufficient to pay for the sins of the world. And that means that he has paid the penalty, that our debt to God has been cleared. And because the penalty has been paid, because the account has been cleared, then Jesus is now raised again. Jesus is raised to life. The uh, Christian leader who said that if the bones of Jesus were found in a tomb near Jesus, then it wouldn't affect his faith at all. Well, I think to that, really? <laughs> Seriously? Friends, the empty tomb of Jesus is the only basis for life. Uh, that is, that life which is characterised by peace. Uh, that peace which the, is the opposite to anxiety, anxiety about death and anxiety about judgment. And it is that peace which results from being forgiven, from being forgiven by God the creator of the universe, and restored to him. And that's what it means to have life in Jesus' name. It begins now and goes beyond the grave. But you must believe in Jesus, trusting that, it, that his death was for your sin. And like Thomas, being able to declare of him, my Lord and my God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are amazed at the resurrection of Jesus. We thank you so much that his death has indeed, has indeed cleared the debt which we owed to you that the price has been paid, that he is able to be raised from the grave and that because of that, that we can have life in him. Father, we pray for each one of us that we would indeed be men and women who put our trust in the death of Jesus and that we would be raised with him, uh, that we would enjoy uh, life now and for all of eternity in reconciled relationship with yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.